Welcome back to the Children's Hospital Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Last month, I introduced you to Our Baby Foundation and their founder, Phyllis Rabinowitz. The mission of Our Baby Foundation focuses on saving babies' lives through improving pediatric emergency care, training, research, treatment, equipment, and education. Our Baby works with pediatric academic centers like Children's Hospital Philadelphia, in addition to many community hospital emergency departments. One of the beneficiaries of Our Baby's grants is the International Network for Simulation-Based Pediatric Research, Innovation, and Education, otherwise known as INSPIRE. The INSPIRE network is the world's largest pediatric simulation research network, with over 120 pediatric sites globally and more than 800 members and 30 ongoing multi-center research projects. Research conducted through INSPIRE network sites now reaches over 500,000 frontline healthcare providers. Our baby was the first to seed and fund this initiative in 2007. A shout out to Dr. Mark Auerbach, a prior guest on the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, who has worked closely with Phyllis Rabinowitz and Our Baby Foundation in his work with the Inspire Network. Mark is the Director of Pediatric Simulation at the Yale Center for Medical Simulation and was the founding co-chair of Inspire, the world's largest simulation-based research network. Learn more about Mark's work and all the work that Phyllis's organization is doing to save babies' lives at ourbabyfoundation.org. Welcome back to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As I search for speakers for the podcast, we try to get national or even international experts to speak on the topic. We'll be discussing abusive head trauma, and we truly have what I would consider an international expert. Dr. Cindy Christian, professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine, also holds the Anthony Latani Endowed Chair in the Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Welcome, Cindy, to the CHOP PEM Podcast. Bob, thank you so much for having me. This should be really fun. Great. Just off the top of your head, Cindy, again, you devoted your career to child abuse and neglect. Give us a number. How many articles or presentations or talks have you given in your career? Throw out a ballpark number for our listeners. Well, since we're in a medical podcast, I'd say TNTC, too numerous to count. Okay, I'm sure that I have over two, well over 200 total publications, and I literally cannot count the number of talks I've given. I've been to every state in this country, mostly for work, and most of them multiple times. I can't even count the times. I've been very fortunate to be invited around the country and around the world to do the work that I do. It's been very rewarding. Great. Cindy, you're validating what I just said as an international expert. Uh, Let's learn a little bit about you in a different way. Uh, What's your morning routine, Cindy? Uh, Well, if my alarm goes off, sometimes I wake up before the alarm, oftentimes. The first thing I think is that I'm really quite exhausted. The next thing I do is get out of bed, walk into the kitchen, and plug in the coffee pot, not for me, but for my husband, who really loves a cup of black coffee sitting next to him in bed when he wakes up on on the table. And then 
If I don't have to leave the house really early, if I don't have a very early meeting for many decades, I've gone for a two mile kind of run on my little treadmill downstairs. I used to call it my French fry run. It was like, if I do the run, I can eat anything I want. But I'm at an age now where (laughs) I have to watch myself a little bit and then rush and leave the house. But I think since the pandemic, my schedule has changed just a little bit. And it's nice because there's maybe one or two days a week now that I stay at home if I don't have essential meetings at the medical school or if I'm not on service or on call seeing patients. Great. Thank you, Cindy. When I first reached out to you, Cindy, I said we're going to discuss shaking baby syndrome. And I think in capital letters, you replied, Bob, I'd love to come on the podcast, but we call it abusive head trauma. When did this change occur? And what is the significance of the change? Sure. Thank you, Bob. For me, it's really important. And it was something that I was very involved in. I was noticing over many years that anytime someone was referring to what we now call abusive head trauma, they just called it shaken baby syndrome. So there are many mechanisms by which you can injure a baby and they're not all shaking. So we would have situations where a baby may have three skull fractures and someone would still say shaken baby syndrome. And that's not accurate. And because these cases go into the courtroom so often, you have to be specific and accurate with your terminology um, and how you describe things. And so I worked with my colleagues at the American Academy of Pediatrics, wrote a policy paper for, for the academy, recommending that in kind of our medical settings, we refer to kind of the inflicted injury on, on a baby's brain, head, you know, nervous system as abusive head trauma, because that can encapsulate both shaking mechanisms, which are still very important, blunt impact injuries suffocation, combinations of these, is it just a more generic umbrella term? Great. So again, if you look at a breakdown, and I go a lot of of this is just sort of off the top of your head, how many of these cases involve shaking versus an impact? In other words, is there a breakdown uh, in the literature or in your experience? Yeah. So I, I don't know like very clear numbers off the top of my head, but what I will say is this. When we see the children who have the most severe injuries from abusive head trauma, they often have evidence of impact. So when you look at autopsy series, not all of them, but many of them will have evidence of blunt trauma. And you may not even be able to see the blunt trauma. Like if there's, unfortunately, some die. So if they're still alive, you can have scalp bruising underneath the scalp that can only be seen at autopsy. We don't capture every single skull fracture. So Many of them have blunt impact to the head, but the very youngest babies are the most vulnerable to pure shaking because it really is hard to pick up a, a 20-pound child and shake it so so vigorously that you're causing severe injury. But it's easy to do that to a one-month-old or a two-month-old who doesn't have very good head control to begin with. Great. And Cindy, you alluded to age. Again, in my research, the median age of abusive head trauma was four months. What is the range that you see in your clinical experience? Um, Well, Bob, in in the medical literature, there are examples of adults who've been shaken in the form of interrogation and and injured. Um, We see clearly infants are the most common victims, but I have seen, um, I've seen 10-year-olds who have abusive head trauma. We, We, you know, if, if you're just thinking about shaking, it's very young infants. If you're thinking about 
head trauma that's the result of an assault of a child by somebody who's supposed to be caring for them and nurturing them and protecting them, we see really all ages. And I've seen some really terrible things in children who were murdered 10 years old. Like they have terrible head trauma. So, you know, many ages. Cindy, you said you lecture, you know, nationally and internationally. Is abusive head trauma seen throughout the world? And are there certain countries that the prevalence is higher or lower compared to the United States? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And I think it's a really difficult question to answer. First, we see a very significant amount of abusive head trauma, not only in the U.S., but even here in Philadelphia. I've had colleagues visiting from European country recently who said they saw more child abuse in the two weeks that they were observing here than they see in a year in their home country. So we, we do have some very special kinds of violence in this country. Just think about gun violence. There's just a lot of physical violence. But there's physical violence in many countries, but many countries don't have the surveillance, the infrastructure, the political will to kind of really tackle this issue. So, you know, in some countries you may have a lot of infanticide like that. That's terrible, right? But they don't publish that data very, you know, very transparently. So I will say this, I have not found a country that I visited or worked with where there is not a portion of the population that struggles. They are sometimes minority populations. They are often the poor populations. They are disenfranchised populations. They are drug addicted, mental health addicted, like lots of kind of social problems where children are not vulnerable, right? There's that vulnerability Anywhere you go, even in countries that we think of as being so, you know, socially positive and, and you know, progressive. Hey, thank you, Cindy. Let's, uh, let's move on. Okay. Sure. Uh, obviously, I'm an ER doctor. You spend a lot of time in the ER. Let's talk about the clinical presentation of abusive head trauma. And again, we're going to focus on, on the young infants if sure. we can, Cindy. You sort of talked about the risk factors. You just mentioned a few of the risk factors, which should, uh, you know, as we build our case, you know, we should consider the family usually enters triage first, unless the child is an extremist. Mm -hmm. Okay. And obviously the parents, they rarely admit to deliberate abuse. One or two of the things I've heard, you know, they, they felt if they give a history of trauma, they fell off the changing table, they fell off the bed. So give us again, a 10,000 foot view. What are the common historical triage presentations that children, infants with abusive head trauma show up to the ER with? Okay. That's a great question, Bob. Let me start by saying, because I always, I feel it's very, very important to say this. Children do fall off the beds and they fall off the changing tables and they slip out of strollers and children drop other children. And the majority of head trauma that you see in the emergency department is unintentional, accidental, often preventable, but not always head trauma. And really what we're asking our emergency department physicians to do is to look for those relatively few children whose presentation is not consistent either with the history of trauma they provide or they provide with medical complaints and it's up to all of us to identify trauma. 
you know, I, was, I just had a meeting this morning with um, two of my colleagues where we're finishing up a paper on the medical and, and trauma presentations of children with, with abusive injuries. Because most, not all, but most of the children who will come in with accidental trauma, they'll come in and they'll say, oh, he fell off the bed or, you know, he was outside running and he slipped. And, you know, sometimes they're make-believe histories, but oftentimes it's accurate. That's what happened. And not every injury is witnessed. But when people bring in children who have been abused and they have such significant injuries that they need to be seen, they may be brought in by an unaware parent, right? A not what we would call a non-offending parent, like somebody who left the baby with like their new boyfriend. That's another risk factor, by the way, an unrelated male in the household. And when they get home, the baby's lethargic or vomiting or having a seizure or is not well. And they bring them in and they truly don't know what happened. So they may say, my baby's been vomiting. My baby's lethargic. My baby, I think, has having seizures. But also, if you're a perpetrator and you know that you just shook the baby or shook him through the baby or did something terrible to the baby, you're right. They're not going to... If they come in with a history of trauma, it's going to be something that is minor, okay? But they often come in simply with a symptom. So it's really up to us and really all of you, because you know, you're our experts in the emergency department, to always be aware of the possibility of abusive head trauma and other forms of abuse when children come in and things don't seem right. They seem a little more symptomatic than what you expect, things like that. All right. The beginning of the year, Cindy, in the ER, there are new ER billing rules. And one of them, you get extra points for doing a chart biopsy. In other words, looking at the chart prior visits to help you make the diagnosis of the presentation during this visit. Talk to us about antecedent or sentinel injuries uh, that you may see in this population. They are so important. So we define sentinel injuries as minor injuries that children have had and when unrecognized, and then the children come back with sometimes life-threatening, sometimes fatal, and sometimes very serious injuries. And some of the common examples of these injuries would be bruising in a young infant, right? Bruising in a young infant is never normal. And so, you know, oftentimes people will look for coagulopathy and when there is none, they're reassured, right? The baby doesn't have some terrible bleeding disorder, but they don't think, oh, wait a minute, why is this baby bruising? Frenulum tears, like bleeding from the gums or frenulum injuries. Subconjunctival hemorrhages are common. And again, those are nonspecific, right? There's a, a long differential diagnosis to subconjunctival hemorrhages, but most of the things that we see are related to trauma. You know, you think, oh, vomiting, vomiting, but it's not that common that a, a young infant gets a subconjunctival hemorrhage from vomiting. Yes, pertussis, okay, but not just, you know, a routine rhinovirus infection usually. So there are these minor injuries, and I've seen even more significant injuries that are missed. A broken bone, a broken arm where there's no good history of trauma, where doctors, like they don't want to get families in trouble. They don't, they haven't had good experiences with child protective services, so they don't make reports. And then babies come back with really life-threatening abusive injuries. And some of the really most difficult cases we have are when we have children who have minor sentinel injuries, we evaluate them, we get a head CT, we get a skeletal survey, we do bleeding in trauma labs, and we don't find anything else. Those are the ones that my team struggles with about what's the right thing to do here. Right. Excellent. So uh, again, from an ER billing standpoint, a chart biopsy is good. And you're saying 
look for a sentinel or antecedent event when you're confronted with a child who may be a victim of abusive head trauma. Physical exam. So Cindy, they come in, a significant number come in seizing. A significant number will have altered mental status. Right. Uh, but if they have neither of those, they really don't have any external signs of bruising with abusive head trauma. True or not true? Sometimes true and sometimes not true. So, you know, there's nothing that's more important than a really thorough and good physical examination in these babies. And one of the things that I always stress is doing a good oral or mouth examination. Like we do not finish our exams until we like make sure that we see the upper and the lower frenulum and even the lingular frenulum. Like we're really looking as carefully as we can behind the ears, on the ears. Like we just, you know, the babies are only so big, right? They're pretty easy to examine, right? Like, oh, let me roll you around, turn you over and like, let me look at you. So a really good thorough physical exam looking for minor injuries is really very important and helpful. Absolutely. Okay. And how about growth curve, Cindy? And also you talked about looking at the head and the ears. How about looking at the diaper for some kind of diaper dermatitis? Does that help you? Well, you know, lots of babies have diaper dermatitis. So that, again, it's part of just a good examination. And, you know, being a child abuse doctor, I always do a good general exam when I'm examining all of my consult, you know, all the babies that are, and children that are consulted for. But, you know, signs of neglect, um, you know, kind of malnutrition, all of the head circumference is incredibly important and something that's not always done adequately because there are some children who present with chronic subdural hemorrhages, right? So they may be vomiting, not because they have acute head trauma. Occasionally we see children who are vomiting because they have increased intracranial pressure from longstanding expanding chronic subdurals. So, you know, to an experienced pediatrician, you may look at the baby and think, oh, that baby has a big head. Their fontanelle may be a little bit full, but a head, there's nothing like a head circumference also to look. But I, I will say that many of the babies who are victims of abusive head trauma they're not malnourished. They're not chronically neglected. Somebody has lost control and has been frustrated with the baby, and that's why they've been injured. And sometimes this has happened, or I would say often this has happened on multiple occasions before they present for medical care. Great. Cindy, you alluded to imaging, obviously, in a patient that we as ER doctors are concerned about abusive head trauma for all the reasons that you stated. Quick question, CAT scan or MRI? And are we looking just at the brain or do we need to look at the spinal tract in addition? Oh, Bob, that's a good question. I have part a partial answer. So if you have a child who comes in acutely symptomatic, I'd say CAT scan is the, is the first imaging recommendation because you want to make sure that there's not you know a large collection, something that you really need a neurosurgeon for. But in the majority of cases, the neuro, there's no neurosurgery that's involved. It's like a global injury to the brain. It's the hypoxic ischemic injury that does a lot of the damage. We also see babies who are recognized as being abused because maybe they come in with an injury to a different part of their body, a limb, you know, a broken bone or something, and they're young. And part of our protocol is to image their brain. If they're not symptomatic, we prefer getting an MRI. Okay. And, you know, for some hospitals, that means that, you know, you may have to admit the baby. Some hospitals can do a fast MRI. Others really only do the full protocol. And so, you know, and if you don't have an MRI available, then get a CAT scan because imaging the brain in, in these babies who may be victims of abuse is really very, very important. And then 
The issue of imaging the entirety of the spine, I would say that the literature is right now kind of all over the place. And there are some papers and some centers that recommend imaging the entire spine on every baby. And there are those that feel like that the cervical spine is most important and gives you the most information. I have seen a few babies who have spinal cord injury as a result of their terrible abuse. And, you know, recognizing that sometimes in a baby who's also comatose from head trauma can be incredibly challenging. Great. Let me just go back, Cindy, to physical yeah. exam findings again. Sure. Uh, and it may be the exam form uh, performed by us or by one of our specialists, specifically an ophthalmologist, retinal hemorrhages. Cindy, I'm sure you could fill the, the next 40 minutes talking about retinal hemorrhages and abusive head trauma. Uh, give, uh, give us the pearls. Yeah. Here are some of my pearls, Bob. A retinal exam is very important in the evaluation of a, of a baby or an infant or a child who has um, suspected abusive head trauma. But not every abused baby has retinal hemorrhages. And with severe accidental trauma, we sometimes see retinal hemorrhages as well. And the ophthalmologists who are experienced can often, and, and there are medical diseases that cause retinal hemorrhages as well. And the, and the ophthalmologists are incredibly important in helping us kind of think about, is this, does this look like a medical disease? Is this traumatic? And sometimes it can be difficult to distinguish abusive trauma from accidental trauma, although sometimes it's really quite easy. An ED doctor, you know, some of these babies come in, their pupils are already fixed and dilated. You, it's easy to look in their eyes and just see whether there are retinal hemorrhages there. But every baby deserves a really thorough, good ophthalmologic examination. And so that's one pearl. But here's my second pearl. An ophthalmologic examination is not a screening tool for abusive head trauma. So if you're in the emergency department and you have a baby with a broken arm, a five-month-old with a broken arm, and the baby kind of looks good to you, okay, doesn't look so terrible, looking in their eyes and not seeing retinal hemorrhages is not an excuse for not getting brain imaging, okay? So you need to do the brain imaging. Just don't do an ophthalmologic examination and think that you've covered yourself because not every baby with abusive head trauma has retinal hemorrhages. I think that's an excellent point. We talk about retinal hemorrhages and are they you know, specific for abusive head trauma? You turned it around. Do not use the fact that they may not have it to uh, preclude the diagnosis. Cindy, we see cases of appendicitis in the ER. You probably have no idea where I'm going with this. Not yet. And at times, at times we use a, a pediatric appendicitis score. We take the history the physical exam, the lab findings, the imaging, to get a high, medium, or low probability for abusive head trauma. We're going to talk about the courtroom. We're going to talk about differential diagnosis. Cindy, is there a scoring system that ER doctors can use encompassing a lot of the factors from risk factors, history, physical exam, and imaging? Uh, is there one out there and if there's not, maybe this afternoon you and I can create one and uh, and publish it. Your thoughts about that? I think we have a paper in the future, Bob. <laughs> um, you know, these cases are incredibly challenging. First, I think the first challenge is just putting it on your radar and, and putting it on your differential diagnosis. You know, it's not a diagnosis that anybody wants to make. It's so hard to talk about. You know, the conversations are difficult. There's nothing positive about trying to identify, you know, the positive part is you, you may save a child's life, but everything else is incredibly challenging. And, but there are so many nuances to how children present with injury and the ways that children can get injured. I'm sure, Bob, in your 
experience, children have been injured in ways you could never have imagined they could injure themselves. I've sure. seen I've, I've seen children that get caught in washing machines and dryers and have terrible brain injury. Like, you, like who would ever think that? But that's literally sometimes what happens. So it's really hard to account for every scenario. There are some clues, though, of things that we look for. And I don't know if we're going to talk about 10-4 facies P, but to me, that's something like it's not a score, but it is a clue to kind of looking out for children who may be victims of abuse. Are you familiar with 10-4 facies P? Yeah, definitely. And again, th- that's a good plug, Sid, the, the CHOP Pathways has a pathway on abuse. So I would refer all our listeners not only to access the, the podcast on a lot of these pathways, but to go to the pathway which Cindy, you and your colleagues have put together on the CHOP Pathway child abuse page. Yeah. Cindy, differential diagnosis, you alluded to mm-hmm. accidental versus non-accidental head trauma. And again, you alluded to a few ways to differentiate that. There's something else that comes up a lot in the literature, although I think there's about only 150 cases in the United States. Uh, Steve Ludwig, both of our mentors, asked me to ask you about this, glutaric aciduria type 1, which is a metabolic disorder, okay, which can cause what that mimics uh, acute abusive head trauma slash shaken baby syndrome? Yeah, so yeah, I've I've seen one case of glutaric aciduria type one uh, that presented as suspected child abuse in my career. It was 1993. I'll never forget the case. But it, it is a um, known metabolic disease. Screening for glutaric aciduria is now part of the newborn screen in many many states. I don't know if it's in every state, but it is in Pennsylvania. So newborns should be screened for glutaric aciduria, and it's one of the metabolic diseases that leads to some brain atrophy and very specific brain atrophy, kind of in the Sylvian fissure, and can lead to chronic subdural hemorrhages. And so babies can present with chronic subdural hemorrhages, but usually when they have the chronic subdurals, it's because they have some atrophy of their brain. On rare occasions, they can have retinal hemorrhages. You know, it's a routine part of our screening, but it's a very, very um, uncommon diagnosis to make. Okay. Also coagulopathies. Okay. Frequently we'll consult you and we're going to talk about the role of a child abuse specialist shortly. And and you'll say, make sure you get coags. Okay. Again, now, is that primarily for a potential legal issue with the case that's needed for the courtroom? Or what is the breakdown? In other words, you talked about the rarity of metabolic disorders mimicking abusive head trauma. Coagulopathy frequently comes up in the differential diagnosis. Common, uncommon? I would say common, but like not rare. So, you know, babies, for example, who have hemophilia can present with spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. You know, if you look at the hematology literature, there are a whole host of ITP, even von Willebrands, severe forms of von Willebrands, vitamin K deficiency. You know, not every parent like, you know, opts in to give their babies vitamin K in kind of in the delivery room these days. So like there are coagulopathies that are significant and important. There's a well-known case in Pennsylvania of a baby who had late onset hemorrhagic disease of the newborn who was thought to be a victim of child abuse until some very special and wonderfully smart physicians got involved. So to me, coagulopathy screening is important, okay? It's also important because there are on occasions children who have severe brain injury who have a secondary coagulopathy because of the thromboplastin that's released by the brain and can cause a secondary coagulopathy and DIC. So you really want to, it's just a, a good idea to screen. 
Great, Cindy. Let's uh, transition to prevention. Before we talk about prevention, can you tell us, are the number of cases of abusive head trauma increasing or decreasing or staying the same uh, in your story, decades-long career uh, in child abuse and neglect? Bob, you keep asking me challenging questions, but I'm going to answer. But I'm going to answer <laughs> okay. this one. Good. Let me start. If you saying, can't answer them, I'm not sure who can. So okay. So go ahead. So let me start by saying that during my career, and I've been a pediatrician since 1985, the rates of child physical abuse nationally have gone down very significantly, which is wonderful. And I think a lot of that is because we have more supports for families. We recognize situations as even as pediatricians early where we need intervention. There are better supports financially for some families better than what it used to be. On the other hand, when I started, and again, in Pennsylvania, we still do, help small counties around the state evaluate cases of suspected child abuse. When we started in the 1980s, and this is something Dr. Ludwig started, most of the counties that came to us, they didn't know how to investigate child abuse or abusive head trauma. So they would bring these cases with these obviously abused children and they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what it was. Now, when we do these cases, they're very complicated cases because all of our counties are so familiar with child abuse. So that kind of surveillance goes up and we recognize more abusive head trauma than we used to while overall rates go down. And I will say during my tenure at CHOP, I see less horrible abusive head trauma than what I used to see in the late 1980s and the early 1990s. We still see a lot, but it is just less than what I used to see. Yeah. And I echo that, Cindy, as an ER physician at CHOP, I think we're seeing fewer and fewer cases, obviously, as you mentioned, presenting to the ER. Regarding prevention, Cindy, purple crying. What does purple crying mean? So purple crying is one of a number of attempts to prevent abusive head trauma. And it's meant to normalize um, the crying infant for a parent and give them some kind of tools in a toolbox to kind of keep themselves calm and to help the baby and, and help understand and recognize that it is really normal for infants to have periods of crying that are not about the parent and, and how not to get frustrated. There have been many, many attempts at educating parents about not shaking their babies. You know, we've had legislation here in Pennsylvania for many years that mandate that all parents of newborns get education about before they leave the nursery, you know, the newborn period, about preventing abusive head trauma, not shaking babies, signing attestations. And the literature has been not very promising on our ability to really prevent. You can educate Again, I think that a lot of the abusive head trauma we see comes from incredible frustration, exhaustion, stress, and people lashing out. So I can teach you, Bob, you know, not to lash out at someone. Please don't, but if you get incredibly frustrated, you don't have supports, you don't want to be caring for this baby, and the baby won't stop crying. All the education in the world is not going to prevent you from lashing out at the baby. And right. that's the challenge around all of these prevention programs. But I will say this, and then I'll go to the next question. I read an article recently that looked at Pennsylvania, I believe, and showed that when governments gave families housing 
benefits and increased income for struggling families, forms of reports of child abuse went down and reports of abusive head trauma went down as housing subsidies went up. So I think that the real prevention is out of our hands somewhat because it's government interventions that support families and provide for the basics. And that's been an ongoing struggle in this country. Well, Pennsylvania has a new governor. Josh Shapiro was just inaugurated this month. So uh, maybe uh, your words will reach him and the legislature. Well, he's my neighbor, so I, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Great. Uh, Cindy, over, over the last few years <clears throat> with COVID, okay, yeah. the public and even the medical system has been divided into proponents of the vaccine and let's say people who aren't too keen on the vaccine. A subgroup of those people are called anti-vaxxers. And I think it's just a very small group. You deal with the same types of individuals in the courtroom, Cindy, and they are called denialists. Okay. They could be the general public. They could be lawyers who use unique alternative theories for causation, faulty mathematical analysis, selective biomechanical data to justify that the case is not one of shaken baby syndrome, abusive head trauma. Even the Innocence Project, which looks to get wrongfully convicted criminals acquitted, have taken on a second agenda item, and that is refuting cases of shaken baby syndrome. Again, Cindy, I know you could talk forever about your experience in the courtroom. Again, give us some of the pearls for our listeners. Sure. Well, I, I again... Because I, I try to be fair, I recognize that there is injustice in our court systems, right? And I cannot tell you where all these denialists are coming from, right? Some of them may have seen injustices. Some of them may be in this for the money. Some of them may not have the clinical experience that, Bob, you and I have, where, again, I can't count the number of babies with abusive head trauma that I've cared for over my career. But when I get to the courtroom, I am sometimes testifying on one side and on the other side is a physician who's never taken care of an infant or an infant with child abuse or an infant with abusive head trauma. They don't even take care of infants, but they deem themselves to be experts. And, you know, it is incredibly challenging. There is, you know, I, I feel like we're living in the age of post-truth. We're living in an age of misinformation. And, you know, it used to be there was a truth and then you had opinions about the facts, let's say, right? And now if you don't like the facts, you just make up your own facts. And that's what we're presented with in the courtroom. And, you know, we have to be very vigilant and we have to be objective. Um, but there are some times where I wish I was Dumbledore, you know, in the Harry Potter series where I can pull out some of my experience and put them in a pensive and have everybody watch and see what I've seen over my career, because you would never, ever deny that infants and children are victims of abusive head trauma, shaken baby syndrome, and other forms of terrible physical abuse. All right, Cindy, I read about one of your colleagues, who shall remain nameless, who actually first fostered the hypothesis about shaken baby syndrome, years later basically said the following, that uh, he argued against his hypothesis position in the American Academy of Pediatrics paper saying that the abuse of head trauma and shaken baby syndrome are hypotheses that have been advanced to explain findings that are not yet fully understood. 
There is nothing wrong with advancing such hypotheses, he states. This is how medicine and science progress. It is wrong, he states, to fail to advise parents and courts when these are simply hypotheses, not proven medical or scientific facts. You say what, Cindy? I say there's incredibly strong clinical data that shows that shaken baby syndrome is real and that it causes severe injuries and sometimes fatal injuries in children. And really my favorite publication that that kind of proves this and supports this is a, a publication by Catherine Adamsbaum and her colleagues in France, where they looked at um, more than 100 children in who were victims of abusive head trauma, shaken baby syndrome, and divided them into two groups, one where there was confession and one where there was a large group where there was no confession. And they found first that the range of injuries that they had were the same in both groups. So it wasn't like, you know, oh, well, these group, these children really were abused and this whole group was very different and they weren't. No, they all had injuries. And then because in France, there's one, no plea bargaining, and two, because Dr. Adamsbaum had access to all the judicial records, she went to the group where there were confessions and the confessions were so similar over and over and over and over again. And again, they didn't get off easy because they confessed something. They confessed. And you know what they confessed to? The baby was crying. The baby was screaming. I couldn't stand it. I shook the baby. And what was so fascinating to me was that it was very rare that they only did this once. They did this three times a week. They did this over the course of two months. They did... and. What we don't understand yet, okay, is whether on the last time this happened that they brought the baby to the hospital, was that just the most severe case of shaking? Or is there something that's priming these babies' brains that with repeated shaking, they kind of hit a, hit a point where, you know, things go awry? And, and when I think about young athletes and, and football players who have repeated concussion, right? We know that repeated concussion is bad, potentially terrible for the adult brain. Well, what does repeated shaking do to the developing infant brain? So uh, they can say all they want that this is not real, but I will forever know that know that this is real. Absolutely. That's a strong statement and obviously a strong reference to that. Cindy, just tell our listeners neurologic and functional outcomes of survivors. So before we talk about survivors, what's the mortality uh, of shaking baby syndrome, abusive head injury, and what are the neurologic and functional outcomes of those that survive? Yeah. uh, Well, fortunately, the majority of infants survive, but unfortunately, I would say about a third of the victims are neurologically devastated and have really lifelong terrible outcomes. And for many decades, I've said the outcomes, and we publish this, are about a third, a third, and a third. A third of infants have just horrible outcomes, right? They may be really vegetative. They may be have terrible hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy and are really, you know, not going to be able to use their brains at all really during their lifetimes. They may be blind. They may be deaf. They may have seizure disorders, right? Like cerebral palsy, all of those things. A third are moderately, you know, impacted. So not as severe as the severe group, but still obviously and significant developmental delays obvious neurological damage. And then there's a third that seemed to be okay, but even within that group, 
Sometimes they have learning disabilities when they're a little bit older. So I would say it's a minority of children who come away from this unscathed. And I think that this is a very significant cause of morbidity and mortality in infants and young children. And then for those who survive, you know, it's all the social and and family and emotional consequences too. Sure. Cindy, let's uh, conclude on a positive note. Uh, Like you said, decades of your career uh, have been dedicated to child abuse and neglect. You have trained dozens, if not more, uh, child abuse experts. Tell us what current or future research in the field of shaking baby syndrome, abusive head trauma looks like. So what I... Well, there's so many. There's basic science, there's early identification, there's prevention. You know, in the emergency department, one of my dear friends and colleagues, um, Rachel Berger, who's out in Pittsburgh, has been working on biomarkers so that, you know, it might be 5, 10, 15 years from now, after I'm retired, that you have a baby who comes into the emergency department with vomiting or lethargy. And, you know, you send off some electrolytes, a glucose, maybe a CBC, but you also send off a biomarker panel and it can identify brain injury of some sort to alert you that you need to go get a CAT scan or an MRI or something to like think about a CNS cause of whatever the symptoms are. So, you know, also working on using the electronic health record as alerts. This baby has XYZ. Have you gotten a skeletal survey? you know, have you imaged the baby's brain? Like things like that, using artificial intelligence to help us recognize babies who might be victims. You know, maybe you don't have to do like a a search of of the medical record. Maybe in the future, your medical record will just tell you, hey, doc, this baby's got this, go find, go find more. So, you know, that's an identification. There's always more to learn about the infant brain and the child brain. Like we really are in our infancy. And I often think like, if we all survive 500 more years, like people will look back on how we thought about the the developing brain and they'll chuckle because we really are ourselves in our infancy. Just think about the billions of neurons that babies are born with that they then lose through apoptosis. And like, they don't need all these. Like, it, there's so much to learn. And then outcomes. I think there's a lot more to learn about outcomes and most importantly, prevention. And I would love to see more of an emphasis on really the societal approaches to prevention, because I think what we're doing is trying to tweak around the edges. And I think that if we really want to prevent child abuse, we really have to think about how we support and think about families. Awesome. Cindy, thank you for your wealth and breadth of knowledge. Sounds like it's a, it is a definite multifactorial issue. Uh, thank you for your service over the decades in the field of child abuse and neglect and for training the next generation who uh, are gonna be doing the studies that may get us closer to, like you said, identification, prevention, and treatment. Thank you again, Cindy. Oh, Bob, thank you so much for having me. It was fun.